Welcome to the Construction Defense Webinar, led by Tashia Razul, Partner and Construction Practice Team Leader at Lois Law Firm. Each month, Tashia explores a different topic in construction litigation defense. In this episode, we're talking about calculating exposures in dual jurisdiction claims. And now, your host, Tashia Razul. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining me for uh, the November Construction Webinar. My name is Tashia Rasool. I'm a partner here at Lois Law Firm, where we handle the defense of workers' compensation claims in New York. Uh, we also have a team that's designated to uh, handle workers' compensation claims that arise out of construction accidents, and I oversee that team. As we already know I'm also the author of our Defending Construction Claims Handbook, which was new this year. Um, it's available in PDF and also as a hard copy. So if you haven't yet gotten your copy, please send me a message and I will happily send you um, a copy or two. Uh, today we are going to discuss calculating uh, exposure in catastrophic claims, which are often um, dual jurisdiction claims. As you know, the, the webinar series this year, it's focused only on construction accidents, and we've talked about the workers' compensation claims and the companion general liability claims, which make these the dual jurisdiction claims that, you know, I oftentimes refer to. So, you know, the, the goal in, in, in addressing and talking about these dual jurisdiction claims is to find a way to reduce exposure. And throughout the year, we've talked about a lot of different factors that, <clears throat> excuse me, come into play when trying to reduce exposure. Now, today we're going to talk about factors to take into consideration when calculating that exposure and I'm also going to talk a little bit about how to calculate the exposure. Now, I'm not going to go into actually crunching numbers. However, I do have a request from you. If you feel like you would um, benefit from a webinar where I actually go through calculations, like how to do Elwood calculations, how to do uh, Kelly and Burns calculations, definitely send me a message and I'll put one together. I'm already putting together the webinar series for next year. So if there's interest, I can definitely focus on that so we can go through all the nuts and bolts of actually calculating and crunching the numbers for um, determination of exposure. But today we're just going to do an overview of all the factors we need to take into consideration. All right. Let's first look at the factors to be considered in the workers' compensation claim. When calculating exposure, I first take a look at the claimant's demographics. Um, are we dealing with a younger claimant or are we dealing with an older claimant? A younger claimant is more likely to recover from his injuries and return to work, which would reduce your exposure. On the other hand, an older claimant may have complications from treatment, may not uh, recover from surgeries so easily as a younger claimant would, or as we've seen in many, many cases, he just doesn't want to return to work, so he is going to prolong treatment and stay out of work. Um, 
Age is important because it'll help determine whether we need to get an MSA. As you know, with the older claimants, those who are um, at retirement age, uh, you may need to consider obtaining uh, an MSA or if the claimant is receiving uh, Medicare benefits, then you'll definitely need to get an MSA um, to uh, e evaluate the, the value of future treatment or the workers' compensation claim. So we definitely need to look at the age of the claimant that um, we're dealing with. Uh, we also need to look at prior injuries and pre-existing conditions because this could potentially um, reduce exposure in terms of presenting apportionment opportunities. So if the claimant has uh, a pre-existing condition that was aggravated by the work accident, we can get a strong IME and litigate uh, apportionment. And, you know, you could very well be liable for only 50% of his, his, his current um, condition or 25% of his current condition. So we definitely need to look uh, for the, the, the prior injuries and pre-existing conditions in our claimants. We also need to take into consideration the claimant's medical status. That is whether the claimant is actively treating, what kind of treatment he's receiving, how often he's receiving the treatment, any surgeries that the claimant underwent, um, any recommended or planned treatment, including any recommended surgeries, medications that the claimant, the claimant is currently taking, or um, medications that's being recommended. We should also look at um, medications that he would need to take for life because those can really um, increase exposure in a claim. And of course, uh, our most recent IME report, we should be relying on our doctor's opinion um, in calculating exposure, um, you know, to determine how much the claim is, is valued. Now, the, the claimant and his attorney may have, or should I say will have, a different opinion based on his doctor's uh, recommendations. Um, but, you know, it, it, since, since we have a contradictory medical report, we should definitely follow what our IME doctor is um, assessing the claimant to be when calculating the exposure in a claim. We should also be looking at the overall status of a claim. And these include things like the claimant's return to work status. A claimant who has returned to work is the, the, the claimant that we like, right? Because it curbs exposure, um, chances are his treatment's going to be reduced or just stopped because he no longer needs it. He's returned to work full duty. And of course, you're not paying indemnity benefits. Um, any fraud finding. This is very important because as you know, with a fraud finding, at least with most fraud findings, um, uh, benefits, uh, the claimant has been disqualified from receiving future benefits if, if the, the board did find that he was not entitled to any future benefits, of course. Um, so we should take that into consideration because that would um, reduce the indemnity exposure. And we've also seen where the indemnity exposure is cut off. The claimants just stop treating, right? Because as we know, they continue to treat only so they can continue to receive benefits. We should also look at any permanency findings or potential permanency findings. 
So a lot of times we are looking at the claim to settle it after there's been a permanency trial. So we should look at, um, you know, what the findings were and the amounts that we paid out already or for potential permanency findings. Again, I would rely on what our IME doctor is saying. And if we don't have an IME, then I would definitely take into consideration what the claimant's doctor is saying, right? Because we're just trying to do ballpark exposures um, and, you know, pre pre present numbers for negotiation. So we definitely work with what we have, but if we have an IME, definitely rely on the IME. So we also need to take into consideration factors in the general liability claim. And this is very, very important in these dual jurisdiction claims because as in my um, webinar where I talked about settlements in dual jurisdiction claims, in the majority of cases, it's worthwhile and more uh, cost efficient to settle out both claims at the same time. So calculating exposure, we should be looking at what's going on in that GL claim. So we should be looking at the strength of the liability and damages claim. Now, in, in many of my webinars, I've stressed how important it is to communicate with the general liability attorney, know what's going on in the claim, know the stage of the claim, um, know what they think the value of, of, of the claim is. We should also know what the jurisdiction of the claim is, because oftentimes you'll hear your GL attorney saying, well, this one's in Queens, this one's in Bronx, the Bronx jury would never do this, the Queens jury would always do this. Um, we need to know where this, uh, where the general liability claim is being heard, because that definitely impacts, um, you know, whether there could potentially be a large verdict or a smaller verdict. And um, of course, the potential exposure, the same way that we on the workers' compensation end would um, predict potential exposure based on our experience and what's going on in the claim, the GL attorneys are able to do the same also. So we should definitely know what they're thinking or what they believe the potential exposure is going to be in that claim. Now, how do we calculate the exposure? So in the workers' compensation claims, there are two lines of exposure, as you know, the indemnity and the medical portion. Now, in doing, let's just say, a Section 32 settlement, we can close out only the indemnity portion, or we can do both the indemnity and the medical portion. We generally recommend that both be closed out at the same time to just get rid of the claim completely to curb your exposure. Um, there are situations where, um, for example, like the MSA dwarfs the indemnity and it just doesn't make sense to close out the claim. Um, it might be better to just close out the indemnity and let the medicals run because, you know, eventually the claimant's going to stop treating and your exposure is going to be much less than if you were to do an MSA. Um, we should also take into consideration prior payments, meaning all the payments you've made to date. And this includes both the indemnity and the medicals, but more so the indemnity we're talking about here, right? Um, for the indemnity exposure, uh, we should also look at uh, the schedule loss of use value 
and um, or the loss of wage earning or LWEC uh, findings or potential findings. Um, if there's no current permanency finding, <clears throat> again, use the IME report as guidance. If your IME commented on SLU or LWEC, use those values in crunching your numbers. If there's no IME report, I'd strongly recommend getting one as soon as possible. It's really important to get one to calculate the exposure. Um, and in the meantime, use the claimant's doctor's findings for just like worst case scenario. Because as you know, if we were to litigate um, our IME versus the claimant's doctor's opinions, the judges are probably going to find something in between. Um, and so the claimant's doctor's findings would be like the worst case scenario and the IME findings would be the best case scenario. So definitely use what you have and gauge whether you're looking at a best or worst case uh, situation. And something that's really um, important that we oftentimes um, may forget to do is reference the impairment guidelines, especially in situations where we don't have an IME report. Never take the claimant's doctor's findings at face value. So, you know, if they're, if, if the claimant's doctor uh, presented an SLU opinion and, um, you know, he is in his report articulating the reason why he thinks the claimant has a 35% SLU to the shoulder, definitely compare it against the impairment guidelines and see if it's correct. And I'll tell you, oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes, if you look at the impairment guidelines and the findings that the doctors made, um, the SLU is lower than what the claimant's doctor is saying it should be. So definitely look at that um, in, cal in calculating your exposure because it can, it can definitely be a difference of tens of thousands of dollars. For SLU, if there's been a finding, keep in mind that no additional money should be moving for indemnity, right? So for the SLU, the judge made a finding or the parties agreed and you paid out the SLU value. Now, down the line, if you're considering a section 32 settlement or a global settlement with the general liability claim, we should know or we should be telling the claimant's um, attorney that, hey, we're not giving you anything else for indemnity because we already paid out the SLU. We should only be uh, focusing on the medical value of the claim. If there's been an LWEC finding, definitely take into consideration that the LMEC, LWEC paid out already um, because, of course, you'd be liable for only the balance uh, going forward. And with regards to the LWEC, I would definitely use the present day value as opposed to the actual value, which means like the, the number of remaining weeks times the rate. Use the present day value. That's very fair um, calculation in, in terms of, um, you know, you know presenting a, a settlement offer to the claimant. For the medical exposure, um, as I mentioned, look at the recommended and planned treatment and um, focus on what is the anticipated cost. Uh, look at the, the, the fee schedule and um, it's easy to pull the numbers and come up with an assessment of if the claimant were to undergo this treatment or the surgery that his doctor or even the IME doctor is recommending, this would be the anticipated cost. 
and then there might be additional impairments that would um, you know keep the claimant out of work even longer and he may not even recover and so the exposure is going to go up see you kind of get an idea of how one thing just leads to the other in um, taking all these factors into consideration medications um, Will the claimant need medications, quote unquote, forever? Uh, I've seen so many claims where the doctors are saying that, you know, he's going to be in this medication for life. And if, if you've gotten an MSA that's focused on medications, you'll see that they cost a lot and they really drive up the exposure. So we might need to, um, if, if, if the claimant's doctor is saying that he needs all these opioids for the rest of his life, then we might need to get an IME to comment on it or try to, um, you know, litigate and get the claimant off the medication because that would help reduce the exposure. Then we also need to take into consideration whether an MSA is needed. If an MSA is needed, then liability for the medical portion of the claim will be based on the MSA. We can't get away from that. Um, that, that amount of money must be taken into consideration in settlement negotiations, whether the carrier is going to be doing an annuity or it's going to be a lump sum or if it's going to come out of the claimant's uh, <clears throat> workers' compensation from the workers' compensation side or from the claimant's general liability um, settlement funds. We need to know where that money is coming from um, because we cannot reduce the amount of the MSA, especially when it's um, approved by CMS. And finally, in calculating exposure, we must take into consideration our friends Kelly, Burns, and Bissell. And yes, this applies in situations where um, the claim is covered by a wrap-up policy where there is one owner and one pocket of money um, that's being dispersed on two sides. That's the workers' compensation side and um, the general liability side. You know, we refer to the claims of the general liability claim, but these are technically the third-party claims that Kelly, Burns, and Bissell um, focus on. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's important that we know how they work. It helps us in calculating exposure if we were to keep the claims open and you know take a kelly and burns credit um or take a holiday versus closing out the claim right now um let's briefly talk about kelly so the workers compensation carriers receive two potential benefits from settlement of third-party actions or settlements of the, uh, general liability claims the first is the reimbursement of its current lien which is the indemnity and medical paid to date. So everything you've paid from the beginning of the claim up to when the um, up up to today or when the general liability claim is settled. And the second is where the workers' compensation carrier would be responsible for ongoing benefits. It can take a credit against the payment of these benefits until the third party settlement is exhausted. Burns outlines how the calculations are made when the future benefits are speculative. Now, speculative means they cannot definitely be determined at the time of settlement. For example, temporary ongoing benefits. Uh, we, we don't know when the claimant's going to return to work, right? So we're just, uh, it, it's not definite 
um, how much we're going to be paying out. It's speculative. Permanent partial disability benefits. Again, the claimant may return to work and benefits may stop. Reduced earnings benefits. Those may increase or decrease or the claimant may return to work uh, with, uh, for his full wages. Um, so in, in situations like those, we have to use the Burns calculation. Unlike Kelly, where the benefits are calculated at the time of settlement, under Burns, the benefits are calculated on an ongoing basis. So the claimant will continue to receive payments at a reduced rate, the rate being calculate, calculated using the Kelly formula, and the payments will continue until the claimant's net settlement is exhausted. After the Burns payments are exhausted and the workers' compensation carrier recoups the net settlement amount, full payments will resume under the workers' compensation claim. So let's say, for example, the, um, the general liability claim settles for $100,000. Uh, with the Burns uh, credit, the carrier is going to um, take credit until the net settlement from the general liability claim is recouped. And once that's done, if we still have to be paying benefits, then the full payments will resume under the workers' compensation claim. Bissell. So under Bissell, the workers' compensation carrier would be liable for its equitable share of litigation costs and future medical treatment. And this would be at the burns rate. Um, it's when each treatment is actually incurred because it's impossible to calculate future medical costs the same way indemnity benefits can be calculated, right? It's future medical treatment is also speculative. The claimant may actually need a lot of treatment or he may need it and not undergo it. So that's what makes it speculative. The, claim, uh, the claimant will be responsible for the balance of the treatment payment. So the carrier pays its portion, then the claimant has to um, pay the balance. Now, someone has to pay for it, and it's not going to be the workers' compensation carrier as long as you've paid for your portion. Um, under Bissell, the trial court can determine how and when payments are made. Usually when we're negotiating settlements on behalf of our uh, clients, we say, hey, the way this is going to work is the claimant's going to pay up front, submit proof to the carrier, and then we're going to reduce the claimant. Um, anyway, so we, we need to know, um, you know, how, how, how the Bissell credit's going to work and how much it's going to be. Same with the Kelly and Burns credit, how much it's going to be um, in calculating exposure. So those are the major factors that we have to take into consideration when calculating exposure in these catastrophic dual jurisdiction claims. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I'm not going to go through the actual calculations of Kelly, Burns, and Bissell in this webinar. I wanted this to be um, just an overview of the factors that we should be um, taking into consideration. If you would like me to do a tutorial on how to um, calculate the Kelly, Burns, and Bissell credits or ELWA calculations or just crunch numbers, um, in, in an SLU claim, send me a message and I'll put together a webinar that's focused uh, specifically on that. Um, 
So what's the takeaway from this webinar? The first takeaway is because it's a construction accident does not always mean you should be paying out an arm and a leg. Many people think because it's a construction accident, you know, it's, it's a very severe injury and the claimant can never go back to work and he deserves millions and millions of dollars. And oftentimes, actually most often, that is not the case, you know. Um, the, the claimants can recover and return to work and, um, you know, the, the, the liability is not what the claimant is, is, is saying that it really is. And, you know, we should never let anything slip by the claimant because they will try to uh, take it from all different angles and, you know, use all of these factors against us. But we should be using them and presenting what we think the value of the claim is based on them um, as part of the negotiations. And finally, let the claimant work for his benefits. You know, in these construction claims, we've seen ben, uh, claimants make demands of millions of dollars for settlement of the general liability and the worker's compensation claim. Yet he's going to the doctor only once every 90 days, really just to keep his medicals updated so he can get workers' comp benefits. And he's not even actively treating. So, you know, if he thinks his claim is really worth millions of dollars, um, let him let him prove it. We don't have to fork out all of that money to him just because it's a construction claim or just because he underwent the surgery. We should be looking at the claimant, um, his his progress and his current status and um, our doctor's recommendations for his recovery and return to work. All right, so that's it for that's it for today's webinar. Um, I will see you right here next month, December seventh, um, where I will go over some trends and takeaways uh, in construction claims that we've seen in 2020. Um, have a happy Thanksgiving, everyone! I can't believe 2020 is almost over. Um, stay warm, stay safe, and I'll see you right here next month.